This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Out of the Blue Podcast. I'm Nitin Seem, and I'm excited to discuss a very important clinical practice guideline from ATS, STS, and STR on the management of malignant pleural effusions. I'm joined in today's discussion by two of the authors of this clinical practice guideline published in the October 1st, 2018 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care of Medicine, Drs. David Feller-Kotman and Daniel Sturman. I'd like to start by first asking both of you to introduce yourself to our listeners and advise of any relevant conflicts of interest you have. First, you, Dr. Feller-Kopman. Hi, uh, Dave Feller-Kopman. I'm Director of Bronchoscopy and Interventional Pulmonology, as well as a Professor of Medicine, Anesthesiology, and Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery at Johns Hopkins University. Um, I would refer the listeners to the article for a detailed COI, but in relation to malignant pearl effusion, I was the site PI for the SWIFT trial, uh, which investigated a silver nitrate-coated pleurex catheter. And Dr. Sermon? Yes. Hi, my name is Dan Sturman, and I'm the Division Director for Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine uh, at New York University School of Medicine and a professor of both uh, pulmonary medicine uh, and cardiothoracic surgery here at NYU. My conflicts of interest also are detailed within the article itself. I would say that relevant to malignant pleural disease, I'm currently the international principal investigator of a phase three clinical trial of a novel uh, intrapleural immunotherapeutic for the treatment of malignant pleural mesothelioma. Okay, well, well, thank you, and that gives us the opportunity now to get started. I'd like to start by asking Dr. Feller-Kopman um, to help us through a bit of the history. I'd like to provide that context for our listeners. Uh, specifically related to malignant pleural effusions, we'll refer to that to uh, those as MPE throughout the podcast. It appears that both the American and British thoracic societies have published guidelines related to MPE since the year 2000. If you wouldn't mind, could you please summarize the major recommendations from these guidelines and tell us uh, how widely they've been implemented? Sure. Uh, first, I'll, I'll just give a little background so people understand the magnitude of the problem. Uh, there's a nice article um, by the Calgary Group which looked at um, inpatient admissions from a healthcare cost and utilization project using the nation in, inpatient sample. Um, and from that, they uh, extrapolated about 125,000 admissions per year for malignant pleural effusion. Uh, the inpatient mortality is 11%, and the charges were $5 billion. And, and mind you, again, this is just for inpatients. Hmm. Um, effusions from lung cancer are a serious problem. About 15% of patients will have effusions on presentation, and 50% will develop effusions during the course of their illness. And likewise, the survival is extremely poor. A lot of it has to do with underlying uh, primary tumor. So for lung cancer, it tends to be about 74 days. And a nice paper uh, used the, what's called the LENT score, uh, which stands for LDH level in the pleural fluid, the ECOG performance status, 
the uh, peripheral neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio and the tumor type to be able to prognosticate uh, people. So that was published uh, back in Thorax, and they had a very nice risk stratification. So we're, we're now able to much better predict uh, who's going to you know, live for an extended period of time, which unfortunately in malignant diffusions is sometimes just a year, versus those who have a much higher mortality um, in you know, a mean of, let's say, 45 days. And the reason that's important is we, we need to be able to tailor our approaches to our specific patient. Um, so as you mentioned, the um, ATS uh, last came out with guidelines back in 2000, um, 19 years ago, and the BTS last came out with guidelines back in 2010. Um, both of those very nicely summarize um, minimally invasive palliative approaches to patients with pleural, malignant pleural disease. Um, however, since those guidelines have been published, there were many randomized um, and high-quality trials that, again, looked at patient-specific outcomes. Uh, so the, the purpose of this collaboration was to get a multidisciplinary group of um, physicians, surgeons, and radiologists um, to come up with guidelines that would actually be utilized. Um, there was a recent uh, paper by the um, uh, European Society of Thoracic Surgeons, uh, which suggested that only about 44% were using the 2010 BTS guidelines, and over half of the respondents suggested that updated guidelines were needed. Well, I, th I think that's very helpful context. And Dr. Sturman, I'd like to follow up with, uh, with you regarding you know, the process of, of, of taking on a guideline, something that there hasn't been uh, uh, much recent publication, as Dr. Feller-Kotman um, suggested, uh, and then something that is, as Dr. Feller-Kotman, a high mortality um, situation in, in the case of, of MPE. So I noticed you, you all commented, too, that you were planning to focus on guidelines key to that of highest relevance to clinicians and to patients or caregivers. And I think that, that that's obviously very appropriate and I commend you for doing that. But I wanted to ask you, you know, regarding your process, what was your approach when you were developing the specific questions we'll discuss in this podcast? And then what format did you use as you took on each of these questions? Certainly. Uh, well, uh, I would certainly defer uh, to Dr. Fellow Coffin in terms of the initiation of the process, but I'll just give a little background in terms of my thinking as a participant in the process, uh, which is that uh, I think we all came into this cognizant that all the data that Dr. Fellow Kaufman outlined uh, is is uh, very, very relevant, but also uh, the issue that it remains in clinical practice is that each of the specialties that deals with patients with MPE, typically thoracic surgery, pulmonary medicine, interventional pulmonary, uh, and radiology and interventional radiology, uh, we're not on the same page in terms of what the best ways to manage this. And I think that we realize this in a very frustrating way where patients could be in the hospital for several days, have multiple thoracentesis by radiologists prior to a pulmonologist or interventional pulmonologist, or even a thoracic surgeon getting involved in the care. And I think that going back to the process of our guideline through the ATS being truly multidisciplinary and sharing with other major uh, non-pulmonary driven societies, including the STS and the STR, really is 
that we can be aligned in how this management should take place. And then in creating a guideline, I think that you, you gather experts in one place, people who have um, worked uh, for much of their careers on this specific topic related to MPE, uh, and then you have to evaluate the evidence. And I think one of the issues uh, in any guideline is that we're limited to some degree by the the character of the evidence. Uh, uh, we can only make recommendations based upon the quality of the evidence and then superimposing upon that the expert opinion. But ideally, the uh, expert opinion would be based upon the evidence. And so the whole process of creating the guideline was a systematic approach to evaluating the literature, uh, looking at the highest quality to lowest quality papers in the, in the literature, coming with a way of analyzing them and putting together in an analytic format so that we could ask the important questions that we wanted to be able to ask. And Dr. Feller-Kopman, if you don't mind uh, providing a little bit more detail there, it looks like you used the, the grade approach to, to come up with the clinical questions and then the, the patient intervention comparator and outcome format to summarize the evidence and develop the recommendations. Would you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so the GRADE uh, approach, GRADE stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. And it's basically a standardized methodological approach to review literature and come up with uh, recommendations, which re really fall into one of two categories, strong recommendations or weak or conditional recommendations. And it's sort of difficult to get any recommendation into the strong category um, that is really determined um, from a patient perspective where almost all patients in this situation would want that intervention, whereas weaker conditional would be the majority of individuals in that situation would want the intervention, however many would not. Um, so when you look through our guidelines, many of them have the weaker conditional recommendations, but that's just because we really need to individualize therapy for our specific patient. And we were also um, very fortunate to have three outstanding methodologists uh, work with us uh, on the guideline. And then that the, the patient intervention comparator and outcome format, is there anything particular that our listeners would find useful to, to know about that? Sure. So the PICO format basically looks at a patient question um, and then compares an intervention with uh, either a control or standard um, comparator um, and then really tries to analyze the outcome uh, on patient-related factors. So um, a priori, you have to define outcomes that are uh, either critical or important, um, as well as outcomes that are less critical and important. And, and that was done for all of the seven PICO questions. Right, well, well, thank you. I just wanted uh, you know, our listeners to, to understand the degree of rigor and I'm sure the degree of time it takes to, to do this in a, in a systematic way. Um, and we appreciate you all going to, to that effort. Uh, I would like to go through the specific uh, PICOs, uh, and I'll start with number one, and I'll ask you, Dr. Feller-Kopman, to discuss the panel's recommendation. Um, and the first one is re regarding whether thoracic ultras ultrasound should be used to guide plural interventions in patients with both known or suspected MPE. Please tell us, if you would, what, what uh, your team recommended and what the, if you could briefly summarize the data behind this. Sure, so um, the, the question came out of the more general use of ultrasound to guide plural intervention. 
if you look at the literature, the rate of pneumothorax following thoracentesis for all causes of pleural effusions can be as high as 39%. Uh, it tends to be about 10 to 20% on average. And there are some nice meta-analyses and large studies that show the use of ultrasound reduces the risk to about 6%, also reduces the risk of dry taps and injury to other organs. Uh, so when we looked at the summary of evidence uh, specifically for patients with malignant pleural effusions, um, there was one retrospective observational study as well as three others that included um, malignant diffusions. And we defined the outcomes of pneumothorax and pneumothorax requiring chest tube as critical. Um, the use of ultrasound uh, reduced the risk of pneumothorax up to a relative risk of 0.1, so basically a 90% reduction. Um, and therefore, the recommendation was that in patients with known or suspected MPE, we suggest that ultrasound Im imaging be used to guide pleural interventions. We also identified some research priorities with all of the PICOs, and the research priorities for the use of ultrasound was could ultrasound be used to evaluate non-expandable lung um, and also determine or predict the success of pleurodesis before pleurodesis is attempted. And I, if you don't mind uh, me following up, because that you know, I obviously I think it's just there's a lack of 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 data separating out malignant effusions. I think we would all say that ultrasound should be the standard uh, now uh, when doing um, uh, considering pleural inter interventions. I, I would did if you wanted to 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 clarify the the, the research questions. I thought that was interesting, um, and I don't know if you you can speak to some detail regarding. Because um, I wasn't familiar with how you can use ultrasound to determine if pleurodesis were to be successful or to assess for uh, non-expandable lung. Sure. So uh, two things. One, one um, going back to that European Society of Thoracic Surgeons uh, survey, um, only forty percent reported using ultrasound guided for pleural aspirations. So despite, really? Yeah. So despite all of us thinking, you know that. Everybody's using it in standard of care, not so much, at least in the, the surgical literature. So we have a lot of room to move in terms of getting, I think, our communities as well up into this. You know, a lot of us are sort of trained in the old school method of tapping out the effusion, um, yeah. but I've probably been one of the earliest converts to this. Um, so there is a, a nice paper by um, an Australian group looking at the, the use of ultrasound to look at parenchymal characteristics that would predict lung expansion. Um, this clearly needs to be validated in a larger multicenter prospective fashion. Um, but, uh, you know, when the, the basic things of looking at ultrasound, you could look at visceral pleural thickening, you could, you know, place the ultrasound probe on the patient as you're draining fluid from an initial large volume thoracentesis. Uh, so we have a lot of information to, you know, glean in the next several years as to um, are we going to be able to predict at the time of the initial pleural drain whether this lung is going to expand. That's that's really interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. I did not realize that number of, of, of people doing, I, I, that's a surgical group, but doing, um, using ultrasound for thoracentesis for, for pleural procedures. And mind you, that was published in 2017. Yeah, that's remarkable. So Dr. Sturman, I'd, I'd like to ask you about the next uh, PICO number two. Uh, the next clinical question, the guideline was asking whether plural, plural drainage should be performed in asymptomatic patients with known or suspected MPE. 
So what did your team recommend and what was the evidence base you used to support the recommendation? Certainly. Uh, well, this, this uh, PICO question arose from uh, a clinical quandary, which is when we're faced with patients with, M with, with small effusions in the setting of suspected or known malignant pleural effusion. So it may have been a patient who's had a prior thoracentesis or a patient with an advanced malignancy in which the imaging is very highly suggestive of malignant pleural effusion, but they're not symptomatic from the effusion. Should we be intervening? And um, the primary question here was, was uh, were they going to benefit uh, long-term from the intervention? Uh, but the secondary question was one that we really couldn't answer based upon the literature, but is really important to us from a research perspective going forward, which is if we uh, do not drain a small but asymptomatic pleural effusion, are we setting patients up to have non-expandable lung uh, in the future, which could create more problems and make them not candidates for pleurodesis uh, if they do need pleurodesis? down the road. And so there's a relatively small literature here that supports it. There's a study, uh, again, from Calgary, uh, from Alain Tremblay's group, in which it looked at patients uh, who had asymptomatic pleural effusions in the setting of suspected malignancy. And 13 of the 14 patients who were asymptomatic did not require intervention when they followed them out for uh, approximately 100 days. Actually, it was 98 days in this one study. In a larger study from, from Barcelona, from Porcel's group, they reviewed 112 patients with lung cancer and effusions, and they showed that none of these patients with small effusions uh, required intervention with follow-up up to upwards of 10 months. And the smaller the effusion in the study, uh, the greater the survival advantage of the individual patient. And so uh, based upon this data, um, we our recommendation was that patients who are asymptomatic should not have pleural intervention. We did bring up the research question about whether or not patients who uh, have small pleural effusions may somehow benefit from the prevention of the development of non-expandable lung in the future. We just don't know the answer to that just now. I thought that was a, a really uh, interesting uh, uh, concept there, and I, I'd ask if, if you wouldn't mind to 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 uh, give us some uh, follow up about that. So I, I guess I was trying to understand what the is it the the rationale would be that if you drained delay drain asymptomatic effusions would increase the risk of uh, non expandable lung in the future. Yeah, so uh, we, we do know that malignant pleural effusions in particular, but pleural effusions in general, especially in patients with malignancy, um, have uh, both high cellular counts within the pleural fluid themselves as well as the high levels of protein, each of which can deposit on the visceral pleura and ultimately cause a visceral pleural peel. Uh, and visceral pleural peels in patients with um, pleural effusions can uh, inhibit full expansion of the lung after drainage of the effusion and may make pleurodesis technically impossible uh, going forward in the future. We, so that's been a concern, I think, clinically, but we just have no data to guide that early drainage will prevent either of those things from occurring. Yeah. yeah the, the, the other thing that I'd add on this, uh, which really gets into PICO-4, which is perhaps one of the recommendations that I'm most excited about, um, you know, previously we were all worried about patients developing non-expandable lung, um, but we actually have great ways to palliate these patients. Um, so the, the consensus of the group, and I'll just also state that on every single PICO, we had uh, unanimous, uh, 14 out of 14 agreed with the recommendations. Um, you know, so for, for this, uh, interestingly enough, for, we actually didn't really think it mattered much to the patient right. unless they specifically wanted pleurodesis um, in the future and did not want to 
indwelling pleural catheter, um, whether the patient subsequently developed uh, non-expandable lung or not, because we could palliate either. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's very helpful. I mean, actually, I find that, you know, I, I've never, I find that surprising, actually. It's sort of remarkable that you had uh, unanimity there. I, and notice expert panels, a lot of times, there's always an argument about something. So that, that, that's fabulous. Um, we had good leadership of our panel, <laughs> <laughs> one of whom is on the phone right now. Exactly. <laughs> Take credit, Dr. Feller, for that. Oh. <laughs> Building consensus. Um, so the, the PICO number three consider, considers an interesting question that often comes up clinically. Um, I remember as a fellow, I often uh, liked uh, using pleural manometry. And, and so I think you uh, asked this question very thoughtfully, whether management of patients with symptomatic known or suspected MPE should be guided by large volume thoracentesis and pleural manometry. Before we get into your recommendation, I'd ask you, Dr. Feller-Koppen, um, some uh, of our listeners may not be familiar with why pleural manometry would be useful. Sure. Well, um, I think there, there are two questions here. One, is pleural manometry useful? Does it add any clinical information? Um, and two, why not just do a diagnostic thoracentesis? Um, and I, I, I'll start with the second one, um, which is... If I'm going to be sticking a needle into someone, um, I would want to do a couple of things. One, I certainly want to get um, enough fluid for diagnosis, including cytology and molecular markers and ruling out infection. Um, but I also ideally want to make the patient feel better. Um, and part of the understanding of reasons to do a large volume thoracentesis relates to our understanding of dyspnea in these patients. So many patients will come in and say, you know, hey, doc, do I need oxygen? And, you know, a minority of patients, even with a large effusion, are hypoxemic. Um, it's been shown that, you know, draining these large effusions does uh, cause some improvement in shunt fraction and perhaps a little uh, improvement in their um, oxygenation. But dy dyspnea is generally not a hypoxemic problem. Um, likewise, they'll ask if I need inhalers. And uh, nice studies have been done that show draining large amounts of fluid uh, result in little change in uh, lung function. Your vital capacity um, really changes, you know, only maybe 300 mLs after draining 1,800 uh, mLs. So the dyspnea is all about uh, the chest wall, and, and the chest wall specifically being the diaphragm and the length tension relationship of the respiratory muscle. So in order to get improvement in dyspnea, we need to get that flattened diaphragm to a more beneficial, you know, curved relationship in its length tension curve. Um, so how does manometry potentially help? Well, in the setting of a non-expandable lung, um, it's important to know that lung is not going to expand perhaps uh, before subjecting a patient to pleurodesis because if your goal is pleurodesis you need apposition of the parietal and visceral pleura um, and that's not going to happen at least initially uh, with a non-expandable lung. Now there's a recent paper that was published um, after the guidelines were uh, summarized the AMPLE2 trial which suggests that actually 50% of patients with non-expandable lung will pleurodese at six months. So this question was really twofold. One is, do I need to do a large volume tap? Um, and two, should I use manometry? And, and the reasons 
to do a large volume tap in addition to improving dyspnea is also in, in terms of gauging lung expansion. Um, now there was only one study looking at manometry and outcomes of pleurodesis uh, in, uh, it was done by LAN in, back in 1997. And pleurodesis, mind you, with bleomycin was successful in 98% if the lung expanded versus 0% in the non-expandable group. Hmm. Um, so our recommendations for this PICO were that if it's uncertain whether the patient's symptoms are related to the effusion, um, meaning that patient has dyspnea and, you know, you drain off a, a, their entire effusion, a liter and a half, let's say, and they're still dyspneic, it doesn't make sense to go down the pleural palliation. you got to figure out why they're dyspneic. Could right. be pulmonary embolism or tumor embolism. So in patients with uh, symptomatic, um, we do recommend a large volume thorough if it's uncertain whether the patient's symptoms are related to the effusion and or if the lung is expandable. Um, only if pleurodesis is contemplated in that later group. If patients, again, aren't going to be considering pleurodesis um, and are fine with the IPC, then you generally don't necessarily need, need to do that large volume tap first. You could even potentially go straight to an IPC. Yeah. Since the evidence base is, is lacking, um, what needs to be done going forward to clarify the role of, of, of large volumes of uh, fluorosynthesis? Right. So are there ways to identify exactly. expandable lung and predict symptomatic response prior to uh, doing some sort of definitive pleural intervention, right? So if I have a patient with a history of lung cancer and I put an ultrasound probe on them and I perhaps the radius of curvature of the diaphragm, um, or the zone of apposition of the diaphragm on ultrasound uh, might be able to help predict if draining that fluid is going to get the patient better. Um, if the patient's diaphragm is already nicely curved and working, um, maybe I should get a CT angio in that patient instead of you know, mm -hmm. doing a procedure on them. Yeah. No, I think that that's a really interesting area and a, and a question, obviously, that, that, that comes up. Uh, so, Dr. Sturman, I'm going to move on to the next question. And certainly over the last few years, we've seen more use of IPCs. Um, so PICO number four is, is, is very relevant. It asks whether indwelling pleural catheters or chemical pleurodesis should be used as definitive first-line pleural intervention for management of dyspnea in patients with symptomatic MPE with known or suspected expandable lung and no prior definitive therapy. Um, and I guess, you know, since there's been a lot more use of uh, IPC since the, those last guidelines that, that Dr. Feller-Kopman mentioned, I was wondering if you could first tell us what the current sort of standard of practice is before we discuss the group's recommendation. Certainly. Well, I think this, uh, this PICO is very important because the first question you asked was, what is, the, what is one of the differences or some of the differences between our guideline that we just recently published and prior guidelines? And it's important to know that in the BTS guidelines in 2010, albeit published uh, eight plus years ago now, um, IPCs uh, were relatively new uh, and were reserved primarily in that guideline for patients who had not expandable lungs. 
So in patients who had expandable lung cord canister pleuridesis, there was not a recommendation in the prior BTS guidelines for consideration of their use as first-line therapy. So uh, this was a really important question for us, this PICO question, uh, because it now accumulated the evidence that had occurred within the prior eight years. And importantly, in this PICO question, we didn't ask the question about IPC versus um, thoracoscopic pleuridesis. I think that it was a more general approach of putting uh, a, a chemical, typically a talc uh, powder or slurry, into the pleural space um, to uh, achieve a chemical pleuridesis. Uh, and in part because of the literature that we have, uh, which uh, has uh, compared primarily uh, chemical pleuridesis uh, via chest tube versus uh, tube via video thoracoscopy uh, or IPCs versus chest tube and pleuridesis. There have not been very many randomized trials uh, that have looked at, for example, IPCs versus a thoracoscopic approach. So what we've looked, what we have uh, for this PICO were five randomized controlled trials uh, with a variety of outcomes that were looked at, including dyspnea, survival, um, uh, length of inpatient hospital stay, treatment failure requiring additional interventions, uh, and looking at, uh, for example, in the TIME-2 trial published out of the UK, the fact that uh, in uh, the comparison between an IPC uh, treatment for a prize primary therapy for MPE and uh, chest tube-mediated chemical pleuridesis, that at the primary endpoint, that, which was dyspnea, uh, it was equivalent in both groups. Um, at six months, which was the secondary endpoint, uh, IPCs did prove better than talc pleuridesis. But at the primary uh, time uh, that uh, the endpoints were looked at, it, there was about equivalency. And so I think that um, what we uh, were able to say is that in patients who had expandable lung, that either use of an IPC or chemical pleuridesis, either by thoracoscopic approach or chest tube mediated delivery, uh, would be equivalent ways of treating patients in first line. Uh, and this is really a, a revolutionary change in the way that we approach this because the clinical practice of increased use of IPCs in this patient population was justified based upon our review of the literature. Well, yeah, I, th I think that this is a uh very important, as you, you stressed, and um, and I, I think you know I think in this situation you think about a high mortality disease with a, a short um, a, a short uh, duration of lifespan, and I think a lot of people favor if if a patient or a patient's family member is able to 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 drain the fluid, it makes much more sense in terms of quality of life and minimizing stay in the hospital when each day matters, favoring IPC. And I guess this seems to be come back to patient preference now. Is there anything going forward that you would look at in terms of clarifying the question other than just uh, individually uh, managing based on patient and family preferences? Well, I think from my perspective, I just want to back up just a second and say that one of the other important points of this PICO uh, and some of the studies that were involved, that we reviewed for this PICO were the primary endpoint. So we've talked previously about pleuridesis, and pleuridesis is not a patient-centered outcome per se. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a technical outcome that we look at and often define based upon radiographic criteria or criteria that we use for uh, production of pleural fluid after an intervention or lack thereof. But for example, in the time two trial, dyspnea uh, and chest pain were among primary endpoints that were evaluated. And so these are very patient-centered. What do patients with bleeding pleural effusions care about? They care about alleviation of their shortness of breath. Uh, and so I think that in getting at the patient preferences, uh, one of the issues is you have to have a patient-centered outcome for determining which intervention you're going to be using. Uh, and secondarily, it's whether or not, for example, patients are going to prefer having a tube uh, exiting from their uh, chest wall for anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, uh, or whether or not they want to leave the hospital uh, with no appendage coming out of their chest wall. That's one of the decisions that has to be made now that we've made this PICO recommendation that either are essentially equivalent uh, based upon the literature. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Philip Kopman, I know this is a, a, a one of your group's uh, very significant recommendations. I don't know if you had a comment about that. No, I, I agree with Dan and everything that you've said. Um, I think really tailoring therapy to your specific patient is, is crucial, um, assuming that you know, all resources are available. You know, there are some patients who, when I talk about catheters, they say, great, I do not want to be in the hospital. I, I you, know, you know, want to minimize my exposure to the healthcare system. Um, and there are other people who say, I really don't want a catheter. Uh, so, I, you know, one of the interesting things that we're learning about now is can we actually combine the best of both worlds? Uh, can we use talc and a catheter? So the IPC plus trial looked at that, also published by the Oxford group in the New England Journal. And the combination of talc slurry with an IPC actually tends to minimize catheter days. Um, likewise, Chuck Reddy was the lead author on a trial, a small um, you know, cohort trial study that we did up in Boston, um, looking at the combination of Poudrage with a catheter. Um, and there the catheter days were only seven. Granted, it was a small study of 29 patients. Um, so I think the future is going to be potentially looking at things to achieve pleurodesis and minimize catheter days and keep patients out of the hospital. That's really interesting. Uh, so we, we've talked uh, about pleurodesis, and actually I'd like to ask you, Dr. F- uh, Feller-Koppman, for PICO number five, um, to talk about you, you all reviewed the best delivery method of talc for chemical pleurodesis in patients with symptomatic MPE. And I can tell you, talking to residents and fellows, nothing confuses people more than pleurodesis. Um, so can you first explain for our listeners the delivery methods and then tell us what you recommend and why? Sure. So, so the two basic delivery methods uh, for talc, which, by the way, is uh, really recommended by all major societies as the pleurodesis agent of choice, uh, one is you could blow it into the pleural space, and that's called either poudrage or insufflation. Um, and that typically requires thoracoscopy, be it uh, surgical VATS, video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, or medical thoracoscopy, uh, which can be performed in an outpatient setting, even with local anesthesia and, and no sedation, um, versus slurry, where you take the talc and mix it with uh, liquid, usually sterile saline, um, and inject that into the pleural space. That clearly requires a delivery device, be it you know, a chest tube slash small bore pigtail catheter or an IPC. Now, interestingly, um, a lot of this really is going to depend on 
patient preference. So this is the one peak where we actually had the largest amount of prospective randomized data. Uh, there were three RCTs, uh, two prospective observational studies and four meta-analyses and one network meta-analysis. And we considered mortality, treatment success, and respiratory failure as critical outcomes and infection as an important outcome. Uh, the largest RCT was published by uh, Dr. Carolyn Dressler back in 2005, where she randomized 482 patients to slurry and poudrage. And overall, there was no efficacy um, as defined as an effusion greater than baseline at 30 days. Um, poudrage in subgroup analysis was slightly better in patients with lung or breast cancer. Uh, one of the interesting take-home that I got from that in initial large RCT, despite having inclusion criteria of you know survival estimate of 30 days and full lung expansion, 17% of the patients in that trial died within 30 days, meaning that we're not great at predicting who's going to live a month. And again, this was before the Lent criteria. And also uh, about 30% of patients had less than 90% lung re-expansion. So non-expandable lung happens. So when we looked at all the data, uh, it, it was actually a wash. Um, so the recommendation was that they both work. Uh, you could use either talc or slurry, um, and we, the decision should really depend on local expertise. Um, if additional tissue is needed, for example, if you can't get uh, PDL1 status or molecular markers from just uh, thoracentesis and your oncologist is asking you for more tissue, thoracoscopy is a really nice and easy way to do that. Um, and if you're gonna be in there anyway, and the lung expands, go for the poudrage. Um, on the other hand, if a patient you know, came into the emergency department with dyspnea and a large effusion and they place a 14 French tube and the patient's already got a tube in place and the cytology comes back positive, you might as well do talc slurry in that case. So um, we couldn't find a difference in efficacy, so the recommendation really is more focused on your patient specifically. Hmm. And um... So it looks like there is a, a prospective trial ongoing. I'm, I'm not sure if that's uh, uh, if, you, if you would be able to spell out some of the details of that to try to uh, understand some of the research priorities uh, going forward. Right. So there, there are actually a couple of trials uh, going prospectively. Um, one looking at um, Poudrage with a catheter um, in place. Um, others looking at uh, slurry with catheter in place. Um, and also one, actually an, another very similar to Dr. Dressler's study of um, slurry versus poudrage um, in patients with expandable lung. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess there's there more to come there. Uh, Dr. Sturman, moving on to the PICO number six, uh, this is another interesting question, uh, addressing whether IPC or chemical pleurodesis should be used in patients with symptomatic MPE and non-expandable lung failed pleurodesis or loculated effusion. I guess first, to give background to our listeners, can you tell us how often you see malignant pleural fusion occur with these associated situations? Well, I think that uh, there have been uh, several case series that have been published in the literature, as well as our personal experiences of patients with malignant pleural fusions who have the visceral pleural 
thickening, uh, both from cell cellular deposition as well as by protein deposition on the visceral pleural surface, um, who uh, by looking at uh, manometry or by imaging or by symptomatic uh, demonstrate that they have non-expandable lung with drainage. Um, in the literature, uh, these patients have been managed primarily with uh, with IPCs. Since the IPCs have been introduced, this has been felt to be the primary category in which uh, there has been very little discrepancy among the different societies about uh, what should be done for these, this patient population. And going back to the question of uh, pleuridesis, um, these are patients who, by definition, don't have uh, pleural apposition. Uh, because the visceral pleural peel is on, the visceral pleura is unable to um, expand to uh, come in contact with the parietal pleura. Understanding the, the caveats that Dr. Feller Koppen just stated, which are that there there is the capacity, at least theoretically and in the literature, that you can achieve a pleuridesis when without complete re-expansion of the lung after drainage of a malignant pleural effusion. Um, the problem from our perspective, from, from the PICO perspective, was just that there isn't a lot of data here uh, that we're looking at. Again, I mentioned five non-comparative case series. There was one prospective comparative observational study. Uh, the critical points here were felt to be mortality and length of stay. Uh, there's not been a, evidence of a mortality benefit with IPCs in this patient population, but there is evidence of reduced length of stay. Um, there are complications, uh, both of using pleuridesis in this patient population as well as using IPCs, uh, at least uh, in the literature. Uh, historically, the risk of empyema increases with the use of pleuridesis in the setting of non-expendable lung. With IPCs, the risk is primarily that of uh, chest wall cellulitis uh, related to the indwelling catheter needing to be in for an extended period of time because if the lung is not expandable, there is no endpoint for removing the catheter necessarily unless they would have to have an unanticipated spontaneous pleuridesis now the road. So this was primarily a, a PICO in which we took a lot of expert opinion uh, combined with the non, uh, certainly non-randomized data from the medical literature. And our recommendation with very low confidence was that IPCs were highly favored over chemical pleuridesis uh, in this clinical setting. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, that appears to be something that just makes logical sense. But as you said, that the, there's not enough high-quality data uh, to let you make anything other than the conditional recommendation. So what do you, going forward, um, how do you think that those gaps uh, in the evidence base are being addressed and, or need to be addressed? Well, I think that the important thing is that with the uses of IPC and increased utilization, in settings where you can definitively treat re-expandable lung, it obviates the concern that maybe we are misdiagnosing non-expandable lung. If, if you're following what I'm saying, uh, the primary concern here is that we may be missing an opportunity to accomplish yeah. definitive treatment for malignant pleural effusion and assuming that the patient's lung is not going to expand. But if an IPC is adequate for treatment of expandable lung, then it's almost, uh, it's not significant of whether or not you are wrong if the lung yeah. is not expandable. Uh, and we're showing also that even if the IPC itself is not sufficient to accomplish your goal, you can uh, put tail slurry through the catheter and you can be successful in that circumstance. One of the interesting questions that I have going back to the whole question of what the primary endpoint of plural studies should be and, and how we define what pleuridesis is, is in the setting of novel immunotherapies for lung cancer becoming a standard of care and targeted care therapies for lung cancer being very mature, 
uh, what percent of the pleurodesis that we're assuming is truly pleurodesis is really responsive therapy, responsive to lung cancer and other malignancies to therapy. And so what we're seeing is a non-expandable lung may not always be non-expandable because patients are responding to checkpoint inhibitors or they're responding to an EGFR TKI. The tumor on the pleural surface is responding. The lung can now expand. Pleural fluid volume goes down. We assume it's because of our pleural intervention, but in reality, it's due to the systemic therapies that patients are getting. And so um, and another reason to put it in IPC is it certainly gives you that flexibility to allow systemic therapies to work to see what happens. And I'd also add that for future studies, it allows us ways to resample the pleural fluid to look at the molecular effects that, you know, what's going on in the pleural space. It's actually a remarkably unique research tool in that regard. Hmm. So I guess, you know, I'd, I'd ask uh, I start with Dr. Pellicabin, but ask both of you if you're interested in commenting. So, you know, based on PICO-4 uh, and PICO-6, it seems that those are uh, steps uh, forward that may increase, suggest increased utilization of IPC. Um, and I guess as you think about that, and as you think about the right endpoints to study going forward, I don't know if you have a, a general thought on those, uh, on those two. Well, I think you know, we got to ask our patients. And uh, we were actually very fortunate to have two um, patients that I cared for uh, with malignant pleural effusions provide input when we started getting the PICOs formulated. Uh, so, so not only patients, but their caregivers too. Um, you know, IPCs are wonderful, but, you know, they do impact a patient's daily routine. Uh, so ways to you know, minimize catheter days, um, minimize um, how long each time they access the catheter is going to take out of their day. Uh, things like showering, swimming, you know, things that are important to patients um, mm. matter. So um, I think we got to continue to enlist our patients and caregivers to see what outcomes matter to them. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, it always comes back to, to the patient uh, and the patient's preferences. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, and then the the last PICO, Dr. Feller-Kopman, relates to an infection with IPC. Um, I think Dr. Sturman had alluded to uh, cellulitis. Uh, and the question is whether what you do with that infection, whether medical therapy alone or medical therapy plus catheter removal is required. Obviously, this is a very important practical question to patients who uh, on average, don't have very long to live, unfortunately. Uh, so what did you recommend? And, and if you could take us through how you, you would uh, individualize this treatment decision. Sure. So, you know, honestly, I think this is one of the biggest potential barriers to getting IPCs placed in malignant patients with malignant pleural effusions because the oncology community is, you know, often says, oh my gosh, you know, I'm giving chemotherapy. I don't want a foreign body that's going to get infected. You know, and they are basing that perhaps on the N of one. So yeah. when we look at the data that's out there, there are certainly no randomized trials for any of this, um, but you know, the largest international uh, cohort um, had over a thousand patients in it, and the incidence of empyema was only 4.6%. Hmm. Now that being said, there were very limited data regarding management. You know, Some centers would routinely take the catheters out, some centers would 
admit the patient for IV antibiotics and try to treat through. Some would try to treat through with outpatient oral antibiotics. So we, we felt this was an important clinical question, uh, not only for the patient, but for the clinician. Um, and unfortunately, the, the data um, aren't out there. Uh, there are no data that suggested catheter removal is superior or inferior to keeping the catheter in place. Um, and because of that, we recommended actually trying to treat through the infection without catheter removal. Um, and, and we, by you know, getting all these world experts, um, most of them had good experience with that. Now that is clearly anecdotal evidence. Um, and if the patient is failing to improve, um, you know, be that symptomatic. And, you know, I think one of the important things to recognize is that, um, especially in the elderly, um, and I would argue um, patients with malignant effusions, they, they don't present like a 20-year-old with empyema, you know, th that we think of from yeah. a community-acquired pneumonia. They don't present with fever, cough, sputum, and chest pain. They tend to present with sort of fatigue and failure to thrive and anemia, and all of those may be attributable to their underlying disease or their treatment, the chemotherapy. So you really need a, a low threshold to investigate for pleural infection. Um, so we'll often, you know, when we see these patients in follow-up, take their fluid and send it for culture just as a surveillance. Um, but clearly, if they're having any of those sort of failure to thrive symptoms, and if it is infected, uh, then our, our practice at least is to try oral outpatient antibiotics, and we will admit if they're failing that. So, you know, if they're clearly developing signs of pleural sepsis, if they're not getting better, uh, then we may admit them for um, either IV antibiotics, keeping the catheter in place, um, and or removing the catheter. And just to follow that up, so I, I think obviously that recommendation is important. And I think you mentioned, you know, the fear of having to routinely take those out. Um, in these patients would be something that would dissuade people from placing IPCs in the first place. So just in terms of your approach that, that you just mentioned, again, uh, anecdotal, but I think it is helpful for our listeners to talk through that. So whether you just see a local cellulitis or even if you, um, you, you, you sample the pleural fluid and send it for culture, if the patient doesn't seem to be toxic, you will try to treat through with oral or IV antibiotics and then make a clinical decision later whether the IPC um, needs to be removed. Is that fair? Absolutely. And we also know from you know, prior studies that pleural infection actually is a great way to achieve pleurodesis. So as long as the patient is clinically doing okay, um, you know, that there is actually a chance that they may pleurodesis and then be able to get the catheter out. A lot of the you know, basis for this recommendation is patient preference. Uh, they, they actually would prefer often to keep the catheter because they don't want to have to have it taken out and put back in, especially when there's no compelling evidence suggesting catheter removal um, you know, is better than leaving the catheter in place. Right, right. Okay, well... That takes us through the, the PICOs, and I wanted to, to wrap up the podcast with the, I'm sure as you've gone through all this data and had some time to, to meet as a team, and I'm sure have numerous telephone calls and emails reflected upon the, the gaps in the data, some of which we've talked about, but um, as you, you reflect, 
Um, I'd like to, and we're now in an era, obviously, of individualizing uh, um, treatment in lung cancer, just like we are in, in all cancers, and looking at the big picture of where the field is going. Um, what are the particular areas related to your clinical questions that you really think that the field should focus on? I think you mentioned both uh, IPC and pleuridesis as an area trying to predict the patients uh, with non-expandable lung. But I'd first ask you, Dr. Sturman, and then I'd ask Dr. Feller-Koppelman the same question. Certainly. Uh, so you should know that in the process of creating this guideline, you had many people in the room with very strong opinions and who all wanted to go beyond the guidelines to discuss a lot of interesting issues. Yeah. One of which, for example, Dr. Feller Kaufman already brought up, which was the idea that maybe the best approach to these effusions would be a multi-pronged approach using multiple different modalities simultaneously. So uh, a thoracoscopic placement uh, of a pleural catheter or an IPC in which you could do um, a talc poudrage at the same time, get the patient out of the hospital, potentially even on the same day, and then have very frequent drainage similar to the ASAP trial, which we have not yet discussed, but with the increased frequency of drainage leading to faster removal of the catheter and potentially greater, faster pleuridesis, less catheter time, greater patient satisfaction. How do we then think about designing studies in the future to be able to answer how these multi-pronged approaches may work best uh, for individual patients? And then we even even talked about cost effectiveness. Um, clearly, that's going to be a patient-centered approach too. If they have to pay out of pocket for any of these interventions, IPCs are not cheap, especially the drainage kits uh, that go along with them, and how do we incorporate uh, out-of-pocket costs in decision-making for patients? We weren't able to answer those questions as part of it because there were so many questions additionally beyond these seven questions that, we, we, that came across, um, and, and even questions about what should be the role of having access to the pleural space with an IPC uh, allow us to do with intrapleural therapies in the future. Uh, with the development of novel therapeutics. So I, I think that the field of uh, pleural disease was greatly moved forward by the publication of this, but we have so much more to learn. And that's, that's what I took home from creating this guideline, that we still have many, many questions that we've yet to answer. So uh, before I ask Dr. Feller-Kopman, I'd like you, you alluded to the ASAP trial. Dr. Sturman, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Certainly. So uh, this was a clinical trial which was uh, led by Momen Wahidi out of Duke University, a multi-center randomized trial uh, that randomized patients between a standard of care approach to drainage of IPCs, which I believe was uh, a three times a week or every other day approach versus an everyday drainage, with the hypothesis being that the less fluid that existed in the pleural space on a day-to-day -day basis, the more apposition you'd have of the visceral part of pleura, the more ability of any irritation or inflammatory process induced by having the catheter in the pleural space to create a pleurodesis and shorten procedure time. This is published, I believe, in the Blue Journal uh, a couple of years ago and showed that uh, more frequent drainage uh, led to more rapid pleurodesis and shorter catheter time. And so uh, this has yet, I believe, to be fully incorporated into standard of care in part because of cost. Uh, the more frequent drainage may lead to more need for bottles, even though there might be shorter catheter time. So I think that uh, we have yet to answer some of these cost-effectiveness questions, but we do know that we need to be thinking about uh, frequency of drainage of IPCs and not just the placement in terms of a major uh, factor in terms of the, uh, the efficacy of the actual intervention. Well, and Dr. Feller-Kopman, I'd ask for your comments, and I think 
I, I'm not sure if they've already gotten pressure to start thinking about when the next guideline is coming out. But, uh, you know, the, the issue of cost effectiveness, is that being assessed prospectively in trials? Because if you don't have the evidence, it's going to be hard to make a, a recommendation there. Yeah, absolutely. So Dan took a lot of the thunder here because, um, <laughs> you know, cost effectiveness is huge. There are, there are a couple of trials, three big, uh, main ones that I'm aware of uh, that looked at cost effectiveness with pleurodesis versus IPCs. And a lot of that has to do with expected survival. Um, if your expected survival is in the three-month range, IPCs tend to be more cost-effective, where if it's out to a year, pleurodesis tends to be more cost-effective. Um, but that's a changing landscape now, especially with you know, things like immunotherapy and you know, ways that we could achieve more rapid pleurodesis with catheters. Um, and you know, as Dan mentioned before, uh, the use of intrapleural therapy, be it um, immunotherapy, gene therapy, uh, you know, our better understanding of pleural fluid production and resorption in the future, are we going to be able to, you know, inhibit angiogenesis and augment anti-angiogenesis and basically, you know, turn off the production of pleural fluid? Um, you know, I think that's super exciting. Hmm. Well, yeah, it sounds like it. So have you, you've, uh, obviously the data will guide you, but I assume that there's going to be a plan in the next few years to readdress this guideline? Absolutely. You know, and, and one of the nice things uh, about this specific guideline, it was really a, a group of worldwide experts from the United States, um, uh, Britain, Australia, um, and especially the, the multidisciplinary nature of the guideline between Society of Thoracic Surgeons and Society of Thoracic Radiology. So I, I hope that future guidelines uh, continue to use that paradigm of the multidisciplinary and uh, multinational uh, you know, inputs. Well, I really want to thank you both for, for a great discussion. Uh, you were, uh, went through all the details of the questions and really identified where the gaps are and what we need to answer. So maybe in a few years, we'll have you back for the, the follow-up podcast on, on where, the, where the field has gone. But I really want to thank Dr. Feller-Kotman and Dr. Sturman for a great discussion. To our listeners, you will find the clinical practice guideline on the management of malignant pleural effusions at atsjournals.org, and it was in print in the October 1st, 2018 issue of the journal. And I'll also uh, add that there's a summary for clinicians in the white journal uh, this past month. Okay, that's great. We can post the link to that too on the podcast homepage. And I'd encourage the listeners to subscribe to the Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nathan Seam of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.